So we thought we would begin with another simple chant. And the words are simply, I am here, I am with you, we are one. Um, and so I'll start it, and it, it has two parts. So listen to both lines all the way through, and then join in as you're comfortable. Um, but first, just take a moment to take a few breaths together. And to arrive in the place of your heart. These words of this chant be our words to one another, God's words to us, our words to the earth. I am here, I am with you, we are one. I am here, I am with you, we are one. I am simple reminder of that deep unity we share as a human family, uh, as an earth family, deep unity we share with each other across traditions, across species, uh, deep unity we share with this planet and with the divine life that gives life to it all. Matthew and I decided to, even though we only spent a little time with the birth narrative in the Gospel of John last week, we're going to move on to the Passion Week, to the last week of Jesus' life. And that's what this handout that we just sent around our texts about. Not at all exhaustive, to say the least, 
and, so, and only from the Gospel of Mark. Um, <clears throat> but they'll serve as our text because we're dealing with a lifetime of study and uh, we're going to be taking some beautiful little... Did you get one, Joan? And they were available on the way in. Um, here's an extra. And part of the reason we wanted to start with, with Mark, it's the earliest narrative telling of the final events of Jesus' life. Matthew and Luke both base their versions on Mark's original text, and they do some expansions on that text, and they fill in a few little gaps. But the, the sort of skeleton framework of these events is held in Mark. Um, and so we thought, rather than try to jump back and forth between four different accounts, we would focus in first on Mark's account. And uh, what you have in your handout, it's um, some of the main chunks from chapters 11 through 14 or 11 through 15 of, Matthew, of Mark's account of the final days of Jesus leading up to his execution by Rome. And uh, as our uh, template and our guide, Matthew suggested that I read this week this book called The Last Week, a day-by-day -day account of Jesus' final week in Jerusalem by Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan. And uh, so that's been our, uh, my introduction to these narratives through these wonderful, wonderful Christian scholars. Uh, and I uh, just wanted to share that also. In, 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 in Jewish study, we say B'Shem Omro, which means in the name of. You always want to name your teacher so that you're not sounding like you thought of it yourself. So, uh, and so B'Shem Omro, B'Shem of Borg and Crossan, they were really inspirational to me and got me going in all kinds of directions uh, to uh, start to unpack what's a really rich and complicated story here. And, and what's so important about them, we've, we've both really grown to love their scholarship um, because they do look at Jesus as a Jew within Jewish context, but they also work really hard to give us both the economic and political context in which the gospel unfolded. And often here we are in the 21st century and we're just reading the text through our own filters or through later doctrinal filters and they remind us the gospel happened in a, in a specific social milieu, in an economic milieu, in a political, political milieu, and that you can't really understand Jesus' preaching or message um, fully without that backdrop. And so they, they work to really unpack that for us. And it's written for a popular audience, so if you want to read anything by Borg or Crossan, now I'm, I'm ready to, to, to pick up some of their other titles. So... With that said, yes, you want so, to frame where we so are? So I'll, I'll just frame where we are. Um, what we thought we would do is begin looking at the events that um, in the gospel narrative lead to Jesus' execution. What are the final days um, as, as the gospels portray them that leads up to um, his crucifixion? And all of the gospels um, set up that sort of final week uh, and frame it as a week, that, that the events that unfold are framed very specifically over a seven-day period, beginning on Sunday with Jesus' entry into the city of Jerusalem. Um, and it's 
what uh, Borg really helpfully describes as uh, what you could see as a staged political demonstration. Jesus is orchestrating something, a march. You know, we still stage political marches today, right? Uh, the Women's March on Washington, right? Um, people poured into the streets as a political demonstration. Um, Jesus, we're told, uh, orchestrated a march into the city of Jerusalem. And we see that he then engages in a number of prophetic acts, um, disruptions, you could say, that, that start spinning out the, the events that will lead to his execution. So he's going he's gonna to do some things that are going to shake things up, that are going to make people angry, that are going to rile up both political and religious authorities, uh, and that will lead to the collusion of both religious hierarchy and government power in, in silencing and killing him. Um, so the first bit, it's often called his triumphant, Christians call it his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Uh, which in some ways kind of misses the point of what he's doing, that it was a triumphal entry, because we're told, you'll see on the text here, um, at the beginning of chapter 11 in Mark's Gospel, when they were approaching Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it. Uh, if someone says to you, why are you doing this? Just say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here immediately. They went away and found a colt tied near a door outside in the street. As they were untying it, some of the bystanders said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They told them what Jesus had said, and they allowed them to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. Then those who went ahead and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Then he entered <coughs> Jerusalem and went into the temple. So this is packed with prophetic illusions that you may not be aware of if you just read this text and don't have the um, Hebrew Bible background. So Jonathan will unpack a few of these for us. We'll see what Jesus is doing. Wh why ride on a colt? Why, wh where does this little donkey come from in the story? And, and by the way, Matthew and I have talked for hours this week. This whole thing is so, it's such a great process to, un, un, to, to explore in this way. And uh, one thing to point out is that the Passion Week we were discussing, uh, which is a Sunday to a Sunday, is probably a stylized uh, form of storytelling. Because um, the world was created in seven days, and the eighth day is always in the Bible, always the new beginning. The eighth day, the, it's also the day of circumcision, meaning the day of entering the covenant, right? So if the resurrection happens on the eighth day, uh, as it does Sunday, the following Sunday, so what do we know about what Jesus actually did and what is a stylized recounting that fits into a 
kind of cosmic template of here's how you tell a new creation story? We don't really know. The fact that it's stylized storytelling, which it clearly appears to be to me, doesn't render it false. I think we need to say this over and over again. right? It renders it not necessarily factual, right? but that doesn't mean it's false in terms of the teaching and the meaning it's trying to transmit. What, the, what this kind of stylized storytelling this, it, it does is it heightens the message because it's put it into a framework that is essentially a sacred storytelling framework for the listeners on the first day, on the second day. Right? You follow what I'm saying? So I just wanted to point that out. And then what happens with that framing will have the crucifixion and death, and then the resurrection happens on the first day of the new week. So it's a perfect sort of going through the arc of the seven days of creation and then the new creation. And then St. Paul plays with this imagery a lot. He says that Jesus, through Jesus, has begun the new creation, which links to the eighth day. So we've got a symbolic storytelling arc. And it could be that it unfolded very much in a week. Um, but we'll look at some of the reasons why maybe um, Mark has compressed the narrative into a perfect week format for a stylized storytelling purpose. There's some little clues in the text that maybe you know, he's made it fit very neatly for the sake of a good storytelling. Um, but probably something very much like these events happened that set off the authorities that led to the crucifixion. I'm thinking about anybody, any movie that takes up based on a true story and then makes it into a narrative arc that will grab us and hold us, right? That's what I was thinking about. So the, there's all of this attention paid to the donkey, the little colt, because we all, anyone who knows the story or even is half familiar with it, has this picture of Jesus entering Jerusalem on a simple, you know, uh, it's a donkey, right? In the usual imagery, mm -hmm. right? So why this is, so either Jesus did this and was modeling himself on a verse from the prophets, or Mark wanted Jesus' entry to clearly mirror this, these verses from the prophet Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, fair Zion. Raise a shout, fair Jerusalem. Lo, your king is coming to you. He is victorious, triumphant, yet humble, riding on an ass, on a donkey, foaled by a she-ass. That's the verse in Zechariah. Your so, king is coming riding on a donkey. Humble. Humble. This, and this is, but victorious. This is important because this actually is why Crossan and Borg say that this is a staged political demonstration. So he's drawing from the prophet here, Zechariah, that, that this one will come humble. But what we don't know in the text is that at this time of year... Rome staged a political procession from the other gate into the city um, at, at the, on this very day. And so Pontius Pilate would ride in, and this was done intentionally at the times of great festivals. So this is Passover. This is the week of Passover, which means pilgrims are pouring in to the city of Jerusalem. And that means this is a time, if you wanted to raise up revolt or rebellion, you know, if you had, uh, this is the time that you would stage that. 
Um, so or just the NYPD is out in force. Right, <laughs> right. Because, you know, you got tons of people and there's too much drinking. And, um, so, Pilot, to remind people who's in power, would stage every year, the week of Passover week, uh, an entry in full imperial pomp uh, with full military, you know, brigade marching in into the city of Jerusalem. And this was just a display and a reminder of the kingdom of Rome, you know, and what it looks like and how its power functions. And so for Jesus to stage a political entry into the city from the opposite gate at the same time, coming in on a donkey, it's again juxtaposing the kingdom of God with this humble, you know, entrance on the donkey uh, with the kingdom of Caesar, with this military entry. Um, and this whole week is about the clash of these two modes of power. Um, so what does Zechariah say oh, further? Well, the next verse says, He shall banish chariots from Ephraim. That's uh, another um, synonym for Israel. And that's what Pontius Pilate is riding in on, a chariot. And horses from Jerusalem. The warrior's bow shall be banished. He shall call on the nations to surrender and his rule, the kingdom of God, shall extend from sea to sea and from ocean to land's end. So that's the whole excerpt from Zechariah. Th that verse can also be translated, verse 10 there, this what is chapter got? 9, uh, and he shall command peace to the nations. Um, here I think oh, it's yeah. surrender. Well, why did my translator do that? It says, but diber shalom lagoyim. And they you said know, surrender instead of yeah. peace. The Jewish Publication Society is a great translation, except sometimes it's completely tone deaf. The Diber Shalom, he will speak peace, proclaim peace to the nations. Umashlom Yam, and his rule shall extend from sea to sea. Okay, so the king of peace, absolutely. So the original readers of this text would know all of this. They would know the prophet Zechariah, they would know the image of a humble king who rides on a donkey and who brings peace, and they would know that Pilate is staging a political military entrance and that these two are entering on opposite sides of the city, um, drawing a stark contrast. More. Uh, uh, Jesus and his disciples have been on a journey from the Galilee to Jerusalem. Pontius Pilate has been on a procession from Caesarea, which is the coastal port city and the Roman administrative capital of the region that King Herod built, on their way up to Jerusalem. So there are these two, so dramatically speaking, you could picture these two forces, alternatives, meeting, and then ancient Jerusalem, the entrance that Pilate would come in would have been where the Antonia was, the, the Roman garrison fortress. Uh, whereas Jesus, by tradition, comes in through the Golden Gate, which is uh, up to the Temple Mount directly. So. I just have, I have a very dramatic image mm -hmm. in my mind. Um, and Borg and Crossan talk a lot about the uh, politics of domination, economic and political domination, as uh, being what Rome represented. And, and that, what most governments throughout history <laughs> have represented. This is how, they, they call it the domination system, but they also call it the normalcy of civilization. Right. That this isn't unusual, this is actually incredibly usual. This is how we've organized ourselves through domination it's systems. It's how we roll, that's right. And yet, 
Jesus has been proclaiming something called the kingdom of God, which is different than the kingdom of Rome. Uh, and is not a new concept, as we've discussed in previous classes. Judaism, in the Torah, the Jews, God, God does not want them to put a king over them because God is the king. And when they finally insist, all these rules are placed on the behavior of kings so that they don't amass chariots and slaves. And so Judaism, in its fundament, uh, is, is critical of imperial power, right? So Jesus is representing Judaism here, his tradition. He's representing it as a prophet, as a radical, uh, the most, he, he's not settling for some uh, lip service. And we'll talk more about how the temple, when we talk later, we'll talk about how the temple structure had become completely co-opted by the domination paradigm of Rome. So, so, um, so the other thing to note is that Jesus' march, his movement, is essentially a peasant march. The people joining Jesus, and we're told that the places he would go, um, Capernaum, etc., never, he's never named as visiting the big cities. He's named as going to the villages. So this is essentially a peasant movement. He's going out to the poor and the marginalized of society. And they're, they're joining him in this march to Jerusalem. And they're, they're marching to say, enough. It's time for God's kingdom. Um, and so this is why this is going to set off the events that lead to his crucifixion. Um, we see that, you know, after the fact, when we, ex when we remove the political and economic conditions that lead to this, um, we forget why Jesus was killed, and we just theologize it. Well, he, d he died for our sins. Well, he died because he was a threat to the political and economic systems that were opposed to God's reign, God's kingdom, God's dream uh, for the world. Um, so... Um, what we're told next is that after this this staged march, the next day... Oh, I should, day, just, I oh, should yeah, just mention that the uh, what the people are shouting when they say, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, that's a direct quote from Psalm 118, which is part of the Hallel Psalms. That is, these are the Psalms that we chant on festivals in the Jewish tradition, going back well over 2,000 years, well over 2,000 years. So if it's Passover or one of the other pilgrimage festivals, we would be reciting this song. They're called the, the songs or the psalms of ascent, meaning the uh, pilgrimage ascent up to Jerusalem. Um, and well, Actually, that, those are sets, the, that's Psalm 122 to 137. This is Psalm 118, which is another cycle, but it is a psalm of entry because it has opened for me the gates of justice. I will give thanks and enter there. So it's also a triumphal temple song. And this line, Hosanna, is the translation <clears throat> of the Hebrew phrase Hoshiana. Hoshiana means please save us. And then the next line of the psalm is Baruch Haba B'Shem Adonai. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. So they are chanting psalms when, as he enters. That's, I, just, uh, that, I just want to make sure you understood that. And again, what the people chant is, blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. So again, there's this hope for, for 
the Davidic kingdom of God, not the kingdom of Rome. So this is this is already going to be putting like the police on high alert. Quite right? a confrontation. So we're told then that they go into the into Jerusalem. They go to the temple. They have a look around at everything, and it's growing late. It's already getting dark now. So they go out to Bethany and spend the night. And then the next day, then they came again to Jerusalem, and he yes, Dunham. Wait, why do they look around? Well, keep that in mind. So they looked around, and then they left? Why is that line in there? So right. we'll talk they're, about They're that. getting a view of what's happening. What are the activities in the temple? What's going on? They go and take a look, and then they go out to plan for the next day. You know, what's, what's yeah. So are you saying that, that people, whether Jesus was alive then or not, people would have been coming into Jerusalem and singing these songs. Because absolutely. Yes, yes. It's, yeah. it's, it's pilgrimage it's, time. It's the regular thing. Right, it is pilgrimage time, absolutely. Yeah. So this is well time. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. That line was usually reserved for, say, the high priest uh, coming into the temple, but now it's being directed at uh, Jesus' entry. These pilgrimages, by the way, <clears throat> it was a very short period of time between when Herod renovated Jerusalem and when the, this, this renovated temple was destroyed. It was a period of decades, but it was a glorious few decades because he had created one of the wonders of the Roman world in, in the magnificence of this structure. He even, and I love going to archaeological sites in Jerusalem, he even created a water system where he, he built this aqueduct from the hills of Hebron, which are a few hundred feet higher than Jerusalem, that goes down like one inch every thousand, hundred meters or something to bring lots of fresh water into Jerusalem. He did it all in order to be able, so Jerusalem could handle the crowds at the pilgrimage festivals. He also built the, the enormous court of the Gentiles that was expanded. So suddenly, I mean, this is the most opulent grand temple in this part of the world. This is huge. So Gentiles are also interested, you know? It's, it's a tourist attraction. Everybody <coughs> wants to see the new temple. Um, so there's this massively expanded court of the Gentiles um, so they can get so close, you know, um, to see. And then you move into the next court um, where women are allowed, and then the next court where only men are allowed, and then finally the inner sanctum where only the priests are allowed. That's how it was set up. Gary? I can't get past the donkey. The donkey. <laughs> and has anyone suggested perhaps that in addition to the humility of taking such, a, 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 such an animal, maybe the message is also that the path to wisdom is to be taken slowly. Ah. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Uh, would you preach that sermon, please? <laughs> he said that the donkey shows that the path to wisdom is to be taken slowly. It's not your galloping, charging steed, but the humble donkey. Um, and, and of course, it's meant to call to mind, yes, humility, but also to call to mind the vision of the prophets. The vision of the prophets that, that Zechariah says, you know, peace, peace. Yeah, ha Hattie and... Did you raise your hand? No. Miriam? It's not the only story... Oh yes, there are donkeys throughout Scripture, including <laughs> yeah, Balaam or Balaam's donkey. And the Good yeah. Samaritan. Uh huh. Yes, in the New Testament, the Good Samaritan. And but but 
it, it seems... And the nativity ride that Mary and Joseph and Luke's telling, they ride on a donkey to Bethlehem. So there's again the prefiguring, you know, of the one riding on the donkey. And, um, and the Balaam story, the donkey can see the angel of God. You know, the animals have eyes for the spiritual realm that human beings fail to have often. It's also a working animal. It's yeah. not a stallion. Right. Right. It is not a war horse. Right, not a war horse. It's not a, and horses, horses call to mind war. Horses were war horses. Horses were an instrument of power and of war. Donkeys were not. Great, no, go ahead. Let's go ahead to the next one. So then we move into what's often traditionally called the cleansing of the temple. Um, and we've talked a lot over this course about uh, what was seen as the corrupt collaboration of temple authorities with Rome. And that by this point, historically, scripturally, the high priest was appointed to that office for life. And you served until death as the high priest of the temple. But Rome got involved, and they would depose high priests and appoint high priests as they wanted to. So there were a number of high priests um, appointed by Rome. And so the high priest was, it, it was a difficult position to be in because you were stuck between, you know, the, the needs of your people and keeping Torah and the demands of Rome. And so the priests were often seen by the people as collaborators and that the priesthood was somehow now corrupted and perhaps the priesthood was no longer even legitimate. This is the position that we saw the Essenes took that temple is corrupt. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of uh, mixed sentiment around the temple. It's the heart of our world. It's the heart of the universe. It's the center of, of, of the universe. And it's also a sign of collaboration uh, with Rome. So you've got this double feeling. I want to expand on that a little because I learned a lot from Borgu Crossan about this. Um, when, when Rome conquered and took over Judea from the Hasmonean kings in 69 BCE. They appointed kings after that, including King Herod, uh, who served from about 37 BCE until about 4 BCE. Uh, so there was an, a king who ruled, and there was a high priest also. Now, the high priest uh, was... Um, uh, which had once been an hereditary position, was now uh, um, something that could be bought and sold, right? And there was a lot of competition to get to be high priest. But what Borg and Crossman point out, which seems to be very sound history to me, is that after Herod died, his, three of his sons were given each a third of the uh, territory to rule. And then within 10 years, uh, what was the one, one ruling um, over Jerusalem? Uh, do you remember his name? Antiochus. No, I, I, don't, I forget his name. He was deposed by Rome, who started simply sending governors. This is by the year about, uh, I think it was like 6 CE. So from the beginning of the Common Era on, there was no king, and the high priesthood became responsible for civil administration and for collecting taxes. So now, unprecedented apparently in, in Jewish temple history, the temple was the locus of all the religious worship 
and of the uh, tax collection and the um, um, uh, so as Borg and Crossan say, they were both serving the Jewish people in their religious needs and serving Rome at the same time. This explanation helps me understand the ferment in Judea, in the land of Israel, in the first century. All the factions. I mean, the high priesthood was now, in the eyes of many Jews, completely <coughs> corrupted. And if we, as we talked about in earlier classes, the Essenes, who may have been made up of priestly families who felt displaced, because there were, because the other thing that Borg and Crossan pointed out is that they, they did a cleaning of the house, they got rid of the old guard, and brought in new families who would be loyal to them, and these families could then concentrate, obviously, a lot of wealth Harry in their hands. killed a lot of the aristocracy, oh, yeah. so that, like, the old money, the old power, and then appointed people, sort of gave people wealth, and now they would be loyal to him, because he had elevated them. That's right. So he was trying to create a system in which people were loyal to him. And Rome inherited that, those, that system of these, of these newer families who now, uh, there were several families, you know them by name. Who are indebted to the kingdom of Rome, the power of Rome. So certain, oh, in a minute, Lenore. So certain, <coughs> certainly some Jews decided to abandon the system altogether, retreat to the wilderness, and try to and try to maintain what they considered to be the uh, the the lineage of, of appropriate purity until such a time as when they could return to Jerusalem. Uh, others there were so there were many responses and many factions, including militant factions, known as in the in, from Josephus known as the Zealots, who, and also the Sicarii or the Dagger Men. You had these. Violent revolutionaries. Who are violent revolutionaries. We'll talk about them. <clears throat> so into this truly complicated, corrupted situation, because for the Jews, all eyes still turn to Jerusalem. And there are Jews all over the Roman Empire who are sending their tributes to Jerusalem. Jerusalem a lot of cash was coming in to Jerusalem through the temple. Okay, so there was a lot of vested interest in the local as the, our authors say, domination system, being in cahoots with the big domination system, which was giving them license to be the local domination system. <laughs> um, Lenore? Yeah, I'm just going to say, remember that the Romans held the vestments, the holy garments of the high priests. I'll repeat it, don't worry. Kept, um, <coughs> up, they held the keys. Ah, see, I didn't know this. Yes. The so Romans even kept the holy vestments of the high priests. The crucial gear, the the breastplate, the diadem, the the everything, under lock and key. So they would literally invest the new priest. Seven days before any holy ceremony or holiday, they would allow the high priest to get the. Oh wow! I didn't know this. So that they could be worn. The moment the ceremonies were over, they would take the garments. Seven days before a festival, whoever the high priest of that. The, the, there were 18 high priests over a period of about 60 years. And remember, a high priest was supposed to be appointed for life. So the fact that there were 18 high priests over 60 years shows that Rome would, they're unhappy, they'd oppose them and appoint them. Let me just one. repeat what you said so people can hear it, and then I'll, the next sentence. Uh, and so seven days before a festival, 
uh, Lenore was saying, uh, the Romans would then allow the high priest to gain access to the holy vestments uh, and then re- remove them from him and, and, and right after the festival and lock them up again. Other thing I wanted to add is that this would only happen in areas under Roman control, and that was Jerusalem and Bethlehem, for example. Right? Not in areas Rome did not control. Rome did not always control all of what we know as Judea. Mm-hmm. When the Tetrarchy um, uh, was in power, when the sons of Herod were you know, in control mm-hmm. of their own kingdoms, they couldn't always impose Roman rule. What's going to happen is what you're talking about is the is the co-opting of all these guys and Herodes and Nocleus and all those guys, so that Rome now extends their power throughout what we know as Judea. Okay, so at the time, Rome didn't necessarily control the entire countryside, but just the major urban centers, which would explain why someone from Galilee, which was rural, uh, and their followers might want to take issue with what's going on in Jerusalem, especially when you have all the scriptures behind you. Yeah. Um, so, so this is all of the background for Jesus' next political action, his next um, gesture. So this first one is a direct symbolic confrontation with Pontius Pilate entering into the city, and now he goes and has a direct confrontation with the temple. And you have the passage here. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching and saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And when the chief priests and scribes heard it, they kept looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him. But the whole crowd was spellbound by his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. So this is day two. This is Monday. Sunday, they enter in with the march. Monday, they go into the temple and they make this huge symbolic scene. This, it's uh, what uh, Borg and Crossan call a symbolic shutdown of the temple. We are going to shut down the temple um, to make a point that, that it is corrupt. Like Occupy Wall Street. It's like Occupy like Wall Street. Occupy Wall Street. <laughs> oh, no, it is. This, this, is, this, is, this is, yes, a group of people marching into the temple and shutting it down. Um, saying the temple is corrupt. Now, what's important is to recognize this isn't this isn't Jesus being anti-temple or anti-priest or anti-sacrifice necessarily. And Christians often have said, "See, this is Jesus being anti-temple, anti-priesthood, anti-sacrifice." Um, no, this is Jesus being anti-corrupted temple. Uh, um, so what, what is wrong with the selling of doves? Nothing. Oh. Nothing inherently. Nothing inherently. Because this was necessary. You actually, you came on pilgrimage to make sacrifice. You had to, you had to buy your dove and to get the proper thing that was pure, and you would do that. So it's not that the sacrifices themselves are wrong. Doves it's that sacri- they're part of the whole doves. system. Okay, so uh, uh, this is how it worked, as I understand it. Many thousands of pilgrims are coming to Jerusalem for the festival. What you have to do at the festival is make an offering. You bring your money. You come up to the temple. You, By the way, there are 
thousands of mikvahs outside the temple in, in modern archaeology. People would purify themselves by taking a ritual bath. They would end, go up this incredible flight of stairs up to Herod's amazing... Herod essentially leveled a mountaintop and then built these incredible colonnades which he topped off so that there could be this enormous place, which is, um, um, uh, they were saying about five football fields. I don't know how many acres that is. Um, well, it's the Temple Mount. Have you been? Yeah, the Temple Mount. It's still, it's still right there. And this, again, is well, the inherent tension. Even this grand temple that is beautiful and beloved by everyone was built by Herod, who was remembered by a lot of the Jewish people of the time as Her not Herod the Great, but Herod the Monstrous. Herod was a psychopathic killer. Yeah. I mean, Herod was unbelievable. Uh, so, so here's this gigantic plaza that Herod has built so that he could show off that he's the king of one of the greatest places around in the Roman Empire. And it's, it's amazing. And you come up these, you purify yourselves, you come up these stairs, imagine you're from somewhere in Judea and you're making your pilgrimage to this astonishing place. When you go to Jerusalem today, the retaining wall of the Temple Mount was never destroyed. The Romans didn't destroy the retaining wall. The retaining, so therefore, the plaza where the Dome of the Rock now stands and where the Mosque of Al-Aqsa now stands, that plaza was where the temple stood. The Romans didn't destroy the, um, the uh, uh, retaining wall and the structure that supported where the temple was built. They destroyed the temple. The, I think this is an important digression. What's known as the Wailing Wall, or the Western Wall, as we also call it, the Kotel, where Jews would pray for, and still do for centuries and centuries, is a piece of the retaining wall that still stands. It's the, outs, it's the outside retaining wall of the temple uh, platform, giant multi-acre platform. And that was where Jews went to pray. There was nothing left of the temple, right, but just the retaining wall. So when you go to Jerusalem today, you still see Herod's retaining wall. And that's what makes this giant rectangle around the Temple Mount. Okay, so you're coming up the <coughs> stairs, this amazing set of stairs, the Songs of Ascent, the Psalms of Ascent were, there are 15 of them, which the rabbis say is to represent each of the 15 giant steps. Mm. And some even think that the Levites would stand on those stairs and sing and play these psalms. We don't know, but picture pomp. Picture ceremony, picture, you know, grand, grand uh, 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 ritual. When you enter the outer court, you had to change your local money for the kind of money that they were using in the temple. Because and your money probably had the image of Caesar stamped on it or a, a Greco-Roman god stamped on it, and you couldn't use that money within the confines of the temple. It wasn't... Right. If you brought Roman money, you couldn't use that in the temple because no graven image, no sign of Caesar in the temple. So you would change your money. Those are the money changers. They're not greedy, whatchamacallits. They, they're people making their living off the tourist trade, uh, off the pilgrim trade. You follow what I'm saying? Then, with your proper money, you would then go purchase the animal for sacrifice. 
Now, why would you purge? Why not bring your own? Because animals to be sacrificed in the temple have to be without blemish. The Torah is crystal clear about this. You wouldn't want to take a chance of schlepping your animal <laughs> all the way to the temple. Get, and no. it breaks its leg on the way there. Right, or whatever. Uh, so there were people selling sacrificial animals. And it says in the Torah, if you do not have the money for a, a lamb or a goat, you can buy a dove. I'm getting all the way to your question. Yes, I understand. And how would we know this? You know, we, we weren't there. But we know enough that we can recre- re- recreate this scene, I think, with some accuracy. And so, like at every holy site you've ever been at, if you've done some traveling, there are people selling souvenirs and holy beads. And everywhere, it's like, it's a scene, right? But it's not necessarily a corrupted scene. It's just, the, it's the scene where these thousands of pilgrims are coming. And this is all happening in the outer court. And that's where Jesus and his followers go, and Jesus makes a scene. And, and again, it's the temple hierarchy itself that is corrupted. Not the people who are necessarily just trying to make a living out here, but to make a symbolic point, he shuts it all down. Shuts down, drives the money changers out. This temple is not pure. This temple is not holy. This is not how it's supposed to be. So the symbolic shutdown um, is making a point now against the corruption within religion. We have the march that's showing the corruption of imperial power, and now the corruption and collaboration of, of religion, of temple, with that power. So he's, he's on day one and day two of his entry into the city, he's made these... Two symbolic acts, gestures, statements that set in motion, obviously, the events that lead to his crucifixion. Can I say something, or did you want to read something there? No, go. Okay, because uh, another beautiful thing that Bargain Cross and do for us <clears throat> is that they point out that there's 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 that the the uh, temple authorities, the families in charge are not necessarily bad guys either. They have, in fact, have got the interests of their people at heart. They have to, they have to figure out how to appease Rome and still allow their own festivals to happen. So I could imagine putting myself in the shoes of one of these uh, wealthy families who's also maybe has some sense of responsibility for this going and not getting shut down by the Roman legions, and seeing this guy overturning the tables, saying, Rome's going to shut us down. So who are the bad guys? They keep pointing out that maybe these aren't the bad guys either. Maybe the system, the whole system is problematic here. There are bad guys everywhere. There are good people everywhere. Susan. Um, Is it the case that in the ideal situation, the money changers and the animals would have been outside of the courts altogether in some... No, this is happening in the court of the Gentiles, so it's that. permissible. It's not I in the... I understand yeah. that. I'm asking if it really... If, they, if the Jews could have ordered their temple life as it should be ordered, would they still have had the money changers and the animal dealers inside the court Would they still have, would all of this have been taking place, all the money changing and animal purchasing being taking place outside of the temple complex 
entirely, rather than in this huge outer court called the Court of the Gentiles. And um, I don't know. I don't know, but it could also be, uh, uh, it might also be stated that the Court of the Gentiles was not considered the temple proper. proper. Right, I understand that, but I... But maybe, yeah. But so there's the question, um, is Jesus doing the shutdown because he's against the exchange of money and the buying of sacrifices altogether? Um, that's one potential read. Borg and Crossan say it's, the shutdown is more about the, the corruption of the temple as a whole. So you shut it down to call attention to that. Um, but you could also read it as Jesus um, siding with those voices in, in the prophets and the Psalms that... Um, God says, I don't want your bulls. I don't want your sacrifices. I don't want your sheep and goats. What I want is justice. I don't want your festivals and your feasts. What I want is concern for the poor and the orphan and the widow, and I want you to walk humbly with your God. Um, so it, it's possible that Jesus is critiquing the whole sacrificial system, um, but usually the prophets, they're critiquing not the system inherently, but the corruption of the system. When that system is taking precedence over the other obligations of, of justice. Right. And that when justice is met, the temple is fine. It's just... The, the, the prophets never advocate for eliminating the sacrificial system. They are always critiquing the fact that people think that, oh, I've given my sacrifice, therefore I'm okay. As opposed to, no, you, while you were giving your sacrifices, you were, you were pummeling the poor with your fists. That's what Isaiah says. And this is the tradition that Jesus seems to be following. Hattie? Well, this, talking about sacrifice and the animals and the, on the altar and the temple. So I came up with this weird question, which is, isn't a kosher um, only animals that have been bled, that blood is considered unclean. And I'm wondering how that works with all the blood that must have been shed in the temple. Uh, the priests bleed out the animals and the blood goes to God. Okay, so blood, the, the sacrifice, the, the slaughter of the animals happens by the priests. So you purchase your animal and you bring it to the priest. But blood isn't unclean. Blood belongs to God. Blood, blood, the life, the reason we are commanded not to drink blood uh, is because it is not ours to possess. It is the life force that belongs to the creator. So when you slaughter an animal according to the laws of keeping kosher, you have to bleed the animal because the blood, and, and, the, and, and the blood goes back into the earth. Um, and what we know about Herod's uh, astonishing sewer works and what is that, there were actually gutters that carried the blood of the sacrifice out of the Temple Mount. He, had, he thought of everything, his architects thought of everything, because they were doing this massive amount of, uh, of uh, sacrifice and so slaughter. The, the blood belonged to God, and that's why it's considered, um, it's not for us to... Exactly. Why don't we drink the blood of Christ then? Uh, we don't. <laughs> don't, wait, don't, we, don't we take... In, in, in we don't. Church, don't we? Uh, we're going to talk about that. <laughs> That's coming up. We're going to talk about that. What's going on? Yes. <laughs> but, but when, when, we get, hold, when we get to that point, 
Um, it's a huge, what is going on here? So we'll get there. Um, and, and one of the points about sacrifice that, that they make in this book also is that we often understand sacrifice as um, a substitutionary act. So I'm going to give this animal to God, and it's going to get killed in my place so that it sort of cancels out my, my debt. And they say, no, that sacrifice actually, um, we have to understand it in context of gift and of meal. And that when, when we are out of, when we are not reconciled with each other, what do we often do to bridge that gap? We give a gift or we share a meal and that's a way of coming back together. So when we're out of alignment with God, we've done wrong to ourselves or to another or to the earth and we need to show that we want to come back into reconciled relationship with God, you go to the temple and you share a meal with God. You bring a gift, this perfect animal, and it's sacrificed, and the blood goes to God, and then the meat goes back to the people. So it's like you give something to God, and then God gives something back to you, and I've given a gift, and now we've shared a meal, and it shows that we're reconciled. Um, and so the sharing of gift and the sharing of meal is very much at the heart of what sacrifice is about. Not so much, I'm going to kill this because God wants somebody to die, and it, you know, this is in my place. Just a minute, Ari, let me say something else about that, and then I'll call on you, just a moment. Um, so if we're talking about sacrifices, again, it's important to know what the Hebrew word for the English translation sacrifice is. It's not make sacred, it's korban. Korban means to bring near, to bring near. So uh, the purpose of a korban in the, in the Torah system is to re reconcile and bring near yourself, near to God, back into connection. And what better way than to have a meal with God? <laughs> it's true. It's true. Um, and there's a lot more to say about that. We'll probably get to it. Arnie? Think of the irony of the blood libel that was foisted on Jews. Think of the irony of the blood libel that was foisted on Jews in medieval Christian uh, Europe which and was that Jews... Blood is so abhorrent to the Jews and, and uh, to eat, to drink blood, to, to have, have blood part of the meal is anathema to a Jew. And yet Jews were murdered and pogromed uh, with the charge of the blood libel, that they had taken blood and put it in the matzah for their... Not family. just any blood. They had taken the blood of Christian babies and put it in their matzah. Now, if that isn't some kind of weird projection, I don't know what is. But yes, by that point, Jews had been, but it's important to say, by a thousand years later, Jews had been completely demonized, literally. We were associated with demons. The demonic. The right? demonic, by, by many, much of Christian uh, 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 thought. And so by that point, it's like, all bets are off. We're in a whole other realm. Uh, that has its origins in what we're discussing, but then takes on a whole life of its own. But and we're trying you... to get back to the days before all of that. Uh, when everything was fine. <laughs> uh, That's called sarcasm. <laughs> oh. So to keep... Oh, yes. How did the um, meat get back to the people as food? Oh, it would be, well, there were several kinds of offerings. There were some offerings which were incinerated entirely and made into smoke for God. 
but many of the other offerings, certain parts, as it's described in detail in Leviticus, were reserved for God, including the blood. Uh, certain parts were reserved for the priests, and the rest was eaten yeah. the as priests, part of the, the ceremony. by job description, were butchers. They were excellent butchers, you know, and they would have to separate the parts of the meat and what goes to the people. And this is also how the priests were fed. They ate the offerings. Part of it was for them. Um, because the priests in the Torah, the Levites and the, and the Kohanes, do not have a land holding. The, all the other tribes have the land, and they would bring the produce of their land to the temple, including their, the their best of their flock, and that's also how the priests and the uh, uh, Levites were supported. One of the things that happened in the first century, which we should mention, is that the priests, uh, the high priestly families appointed by Rome ignored this and became absentee landowners of large tracts of land as well. So, um, you know, what else is new? Come on. So, uh, where were we? So, so where we are, Jesus has just um, done this second symbolic action in the temple and then the next day we're told again they came to Jerusalem so they go into the city and then they go back out and they camp or wherever they're staying and then they enter again so what's going to happen the next day oh we up to the questions and disputes so, unless you have no some I want to I got some more to say here yeah please um, <laughs> keep, keep building is it not written my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations but you have made it a den of robbers both scriptural references, both references to prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah right there. So I want to hear those passages. Again, remember, the listeners knew where this stuff came from. And so the story, this is a, this is a story being woven on ancient prophetic passages. So we got to hear what they are. So, Isaiah. Um, This is interesting because when we hear a house of prayer for all peoples, what do you think, how do you immediately interpret that? One religion. One religion, everyone, we're all, right? And so it can become a text where uh, a Christian would say, see, now this new covenant is for all of humanity. Or we hear it as, we would tend to hear it as a house of prayer for all people, Muslims can pray there, and Hindus can pray there, and Jews can pray there, and Christians can pray there. Is that what Isaiah is up to? Is that what Jesus is up to? Uh, because Jesus, there's no, I've seen no evidence in, in Mark, at least, that Jesus is proclaiming that Judaism is passé, and that it's time for something that will result for all humanity, right? That is the canard used against Judaism by Christianity forever and ever. And part of its problem is that Christianity is not being universal. Christianity is being triumphal and saying, it's us now, not you. It's not saying all humanity in our nice uh, universal liberal uh, way uh, that we imagine is true. I hope so. Um, now hold on, Avis. I want to finish this train of thought, I'm afraid. Um, uh, so, uh, so, there, so if you look at the Isaiah quote, Jesus is not necessarily saying this is a house of prayer for all peoples who aren't Jewish. Listen to the quote. Let not the foreigner say who has attached himself to the Lord. There were always outsiders who wanted to become part of the covenant. Let him not say the Lord will keep me apart from his people. And let not the eunuch say. Okay, he's writing in the time of the Persian Empire. Lots of eunuchs. Um, 
right? I mean, the sultan, the king, they they, they didn't want any any uh, any uh, competition right. for their harem. The servants in your harem have to be a non-threat. And let not the eunuch say, I am a withered tree. For thus said the Lord, as for the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who have chosen what I desire and hold fast to my covenant, I will give them in my house and within my walls a monument and a name. Uh, better this is than a bit of a reversal, too, because it's been understood that a eunuch is not whole in body and therefore doesn't have right, a whole Right, a eunuch, yeah, that's right, that's right. This is pretty radical from Isaiah. Uh, and by the way, a monument and a name, for those who know Hebrew, is Yad Vashem. Uh, that's where that's where Yad Vashem is the Holocaust uh, National Holocaust Memorial in a museum in Israel, and they decided to name it after that line in uh, in Isaiah. I will give them an everlasting name which shall not perish. And as for the foreigners who attach themselves to the Lord to minister to Him and to love the name of the Lord, to be His servants, all who keep Sabbath and do not pro profane it, and who hold fast to My covenant. I will bring them to my sacred mount and let them rejoice in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices shall be welcome on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Thus declares the Lord. So it's all people who want to become a part of the covenant, who want to join in the covenant. Um, so the covenant, it, it's a non-exclusive covenant. Everyone can come in, but they come in by keeping the covenant. Right. So it's an, it, that's what Isaiah is saying. Isaiah is saying it at a time. Uh, again, now, this, now we have to go back several centuries, say 400, 500 BCE, when there was a very strong push amongst the returnees from Babylon to exclude anyone who didn't have a pure lineage. We know that from the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. So Isaiah is a voice against that, again, in a particular historical moment several centuries earlier. Anyway, so that's a house of prayer for all peoples passage. And so is Jesus saying all peoples the way we think all peoples mean? Probably not, if you follow what I'm saying. But he's speaking in what we've come to expect from Jesus, inclusion right. within the people he's preaching to. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, so then there's this amazing next passage. I, About I, the den of robbers. Oh my goodness, yeah. So let's go to Jeremiah. And... Uh, but you have made it a den of robbers. And, and it's also possible or, or, or worth noting that there are people who are profiting off of the pilgrimage trade, right? Oh, yes. It's becoming a bit of a capitalist venture. You know, you want to make money off the pilgrims. And so people might have been upping the cost of the sacrifices more than they should have or, or making you pay a little bit more to change your money than was fair. So uh, there could be a, uh, a critique of the, the money being made off the pilgrimage trade. Because people have to offer their sacrifices, so you're going to make a little more profit off of them. But now, that is also true. But now, think of, this is classic prophetic kind of talking. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, the year is 600 BCE. Stand at the gate of the house of the Lord, the temple, and there proclaim this word. Where's Jesus, by the way? in the temple courtyard. Hear the word of the Lord, all of you, all you, all you of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. <coughs> Thus said the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, mend your ways and your actions, and I will let you dwell in this place. Don't put your trust in illusions and say, 
the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. <laughs> it'll, it'll get clear. No, if you really mend your ways and your actions, if you execute justice between one person and another, if you do not oppress the stranger, the orphan, and the widow, if you do not shed the blood of the innocent in this place, if you do not follow other guard, gods to your own harm, then only will I let you dwell in this place, in the land I gave to your fathers for all time. See, you are relying on illusions that are of no avail. Will you steal and murder and commit adultery and swear falsely and sacrifice to false gods and follow other gods whom you have not experienced and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe. We are safe. We're in the temple. We're safe. To do all these abhorrent things, safe to do all these abhorrent things? Do you consider this house which bears my name to be a den of robbers? As for me... I have been watching, declares the Lord. Just go to my place at Shiloh, where I had established my name formerly, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. He destroyed. And now, because, <laughs> now because you do all these things, declares the Lord, and though I spoke to you persistently, you would not listen. And though I called to you, you would not respond. Therefore, I will do to the house which bears my name, on which you rely, and to the place which I gave you and your fathers, just what I did to Shiloh, and I will cast you out of my presence as I cast out your brothers in the north. I'll destroy your temple, the voice of God says. Um, so this is what Jesus is quoting. Uh, in the den of robbers, the den of thieves. Yeah, please. So when, Jesus, when, when Jeremiah makes a similar speech uh, elsewhere, he, there's another episode in chapter 26 where he says, I'm going to do this. He's speaking in the, it says, stand in the court of the house of the Lord. So it's a repeat of this kind of episode. It says, the priests, this is Jeremiah, the priests and prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. And when Jeremiah finished speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, the priests and the prophets and all the people seized him shouting, you shall die. How dare you prophesy in the name of the Lord that this house shall become like Shiloh and this city be made desolate without inhabitants and all the people crowded about Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. When the officials of Judah heard about this, uh, uh, they, the priests and prophets said to the officials, okay, when the officials of Judah heard about this, they went up from the king's palace to the house of the Lord and had, held a session at the entrance of the new gate of the house of the Lord. The priests and prophets said to the officials and to all the people, this man deserves the death penalty, for he has prophesied against this city as you yourselves have heard. Now what are they saying about Jesus? Yes. Right? They're gathering and saying, Jesus is, Jesus is enacting and speaking the words of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Zechariah. And it's sort of like the repeat, you know, same story. Jeremiah was let off the hook that time. Um, he said, listen to what he says, because think about Jesus as well. Um, Jeremiah said to the officials and to all the people, it was the Lord who sent me to prophesy against this house and this city all the words you heard. Therefore, mend your ways and your acts. He's, he's like facing death right this minute. And heed the Lord your God, that the Lord may renounce the punishment he has decreed for you. As for me... I am in your hands. Do to me what seems good and right to you. Kill me if you must. 
But know that if you put me to death, you and this city and its inhabitants will be guilty of shedding the blood of an innocent man. For in truth, the Lord has sent me to you to speak all these words to you. Uh, and uh, then they, he, in this episode, they relent. And he's not killed. He's thrown into the dung heap in another one. You know, Jeremiah, but that passage reminds me so much of this. So once again, you can read it in a number of ways. Jesus could be, this could be an account of Jesus actively modeling himself on the great prophets. That's plausible to me. It could be Jesus did something like this. And then in the telling, the way we've described, all of his antecedents, all of the elder prophets, their stories are worked into his story to put him firmly in the lineage. I love that. I never read that passage from Jeremiah with these eyes before. He says, take me if I, take me, you know. And Jesus takes the same risk, makes the same wager, and things unfold a little differently. Yes, yes. So this is the backdrop. Um, these are the two main actions at the start of the week, and then people are on edge. This prophet has come into the city, he's riled everyone up, and we get some sections then, and we've only put a couple of them here, but in the 12th chapter, we see that um, people are now challenging and questioning Jesus, just the way they were challenging and questioning Zechariah. Um, the passage that you see here at the beginning of chapter 12, it's one that we looked at a few weeks ago, but I'll just point it out briefly again. Again, they came... Wait, in, before you, before yeah, you read it, Avis, I never recognized oh. you before. Avis, I forgot right. to recognize no. you. Did yeah. you want to say something? No, I'm just... Um, it's not a philosophical question, but a social one, meaning we're talking about crowds. It said, how many people are involved in it? How many thousands. people? Tens of thousands. Tens of thousands. Tens of thousands would come to Jerusalem... That's what Herod made everything, uh, did all his great works. He made Jerusalem a, an incredible pilgrimage site. I mean, the accounts seem to be that tens of thousands of people would come to Jerusalem for these festivals. So then how many were following Christ at that time? Meaning? How many were following Jesus at that time? Yeah. We have no way of knowing. No way of knowing. <coughs> yeah, we don't know how many people are in this march. Clearly... People, especially those from among the peasant class, are inspired by him and drawn to him. Um, we're told at one point in the Gospels that he sends out 70 of his students to go and share the message in other villages and towns. But 70 is not a literal number right. in biblical. 70 means a lot. He sent out a lot. Um, so he had a following. And then, of course, 12 is used symbolically, that he's got this inner circle of 12, which again symbolizes the 12 tribes you know, brought back into unity. Um, so these symbolic numbers are being used, but, you know, he amassed a decent movement from among the peasant class. He got the attention of the authorities. Right, because I was wondering how many Romans were there versus, it's like these yeah. conflicting crowds. It was a scene. <laughs> there were roughly about 70,000 people in Jerusalem and the surrounding area. 70,000 people who 70, lived in Jerusalem and its right. environs. So the Romans had about 15,000 soldiers in the region. Minimum, minimum. Minimum. all the Allah and all the whatever. And they would move a certain amount of soldiers down um, in, into Jerusalem on purpose, which is what we were talking about before, 
right. in order to ostensibly keep order. They would move a certain number of their battalions down to Jerusalem to keep order uh, during the festival pilgrimage times. Thousands of Roman soldiers. Again, that amplifies what Matthew was saying before of a guy entering on a donkey and thousands of Roman soldiers coming from the other direction. And, and that also, this emphasizes why, so they did this so they could squash any violent uprisings or rebellions. So they could, first of all, deter them so they just won't happen because they're too afraid. But if they do happen, we can just squash them in an instant. And so that's why we'll see Jesus' followers take a different strategy. If they had engaged in violent rebellion, then they're going to descend on them immediately. Because they're engaging in nonviolent resistance tactics, it sort of throws them off a little bit. You know, you know what to do when someone's violently uprising. You're not so sure what to do when, when they're doing these political demonstrations, but they wow. haven't pulled out swords. Wow. Um, so it's actually the nonviolent movement Jesus is engaging in, it, it's also strategic. Having been on a um, uh, civil rights pilgrimage tour this fall and thinking about the history of, um, of the uh, civil rights movement and the, when the break happened, when people lost, when, when African Americans, some lost patience with Dr. King's methods and started promoting violent um, insurrection and yet similar factionalizing as you get more and more uh, as it gets, as the struggle gets harder and harder. Vivian, you wanted to say uh, something? Yeah, I, I wondered why, as evening approaches, they keep on going out of Jerusalem, then coming back in the next morning. Maybe they can't afford to stay in town. Maybe they're having to go and camp outside the city. Um, or maybe it's safer to be outside of the city because they're not where there are armed guards. And, um, and that's right, and Borg, that's sort of good, good assumptions. And Borg and Crossan also point out that maybe they are retreating in order to plan and, and their next action. Uh, but yes, it must have been pretty expensive to find lodging right in town when 200,000 people are there. Yeah, yeah, yeah for real. Yeah. Um, so we won't read these next couple of passages. I'll just point out, these are um, people are now beginning to dispute and engage with Jesus after these acts have happened. So that beginning of chapter uh, 12 section there, verse 27, Again they came into Jerusalem. As he was walking in the temple, so again, a presence in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him and said, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Um, and this is where he, he, we see he slips out of their questions always. So this is where a few weeks ago he says, Well, well tell me by what authority you think John the Baptist did what he did. And they go, Well, if we say that it's God's and that he's a prophet, then... Well, we don't think that, but the people think that. So if we say it's not, then the people will turn against us. So they don't answer. And so Jesus doesn't answer either. So he keeps slipping out of their, the traps that they set. They're rhetorical traps. Right. Yeah. So that's what we see happening in the next chapter, them trying to entrap Jesus. Um, and did you want to look at the render to Caesar, or should we keep moving? Let's keep moving. Okay. So then we get a section in the 13th chapter that's sometimes called the little apocalypse and it's where Jesus suddenly turns apocalyptic um, and, and talks about the destruction of the temple. It says destruction and war foretold. Find that section. Right, second page, chapter 13. And um, 
Some scholars would say because this is written around the year 70, that this is maybe a retrojection after the fact. The temple has been destroyed, and so you have Jesus predicting the temple's destruction. But it wouldn't have been uncommon for a prophet to predict the potential demise of the temple. We just heard Jeremiah do the exact same thing, where God says, I'll push down your temple. So Jesus says, as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what large stones and large buildings. Hasn't Herod made the greatest, most amazing temple? Herod's stones are astonishing. When you go to Jerusalem, he wanted to impress. And when you go and see the excavated, um, a tiny digression, because I love Jerusalem and archaeology there so much. The current ground level of the temple wall, though the outside wall of the temple enclosure is, oh, I don't know, it's high, 50, <laughs> 70 feet, but they have, the archaeologists have now dug down to bedrock, 90 feet, okay? There was 90 feet of rubble uh, outside the walls of Jerusalem that got, just got built on and built on over the century. So down at the base, you can go down to the original base now and see the original stones, and they are, you know, 15 feet long by 8 feet high. By They weigh like hundreds and hundreds of tons. It's very, if you wanted to impress someone in the ancient world, Herod succeeded. Uh, he didn't have any cranes to do that, you know. So Jesus responds and says, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. And then he goes on and foretells of wars and rumors of wars and tells them not to be alarmed, um, that all of this is but the beginning of the birth pains. Um, so this passage, uh, whether spoken by the historical Jesus or spoken by the gospel author of Mark, uh, we can see that in the year 70, the temple has been destroyed. There are wars and rumors of wars. So a passage like this is, is of great comfort to people who are living through these circumstances. Um, so then we move into chapter 14. And this, um, well, did I hear a question? No. Um, so we're moving to Wednesday, essentially, I guess. We've gone through Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and now we're Wednesday of this last week of Jesus. Um, it was two days. Does that seem right? Would this be Wednesday at this point? We can't be to Thursday yet. It was two days before the Passover. So we're two days before the Passover. I'm going to look and see how... How? Well, we're not to Thursday yet, I don't think. Okay, so the way Crossan and Borg break down the unfolding here, it's yeah. Wednesday, yeah. So Wednesday, so two days before the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread, the chief priests and scribes were looking for a way to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. So they need an excuse. They need, what law has he broken? What can we arrest him for so that we can silence, you know, this, this potential uprising, squelch this uprising. And they have to do it by stealth, presumably. They don't. Because the people love him. They love right? him. For they said, not during the festival, or there may be a riot among the people. 
while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he said, they want to handle this before Passover begins. Right. Let's end this before the festival actually begins, the festival proper. Um, as he said at table, as Jesus said at table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very costly ointment of nard, broke open the jar, and poured the ointment on his head. But some were there who said to one another in anger, Why has the ointment waste, been wasted in this way? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii in the money given to the poor. Isn't Jesus all about helping out the poor? And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's performed a good service for me. For you always have the poor with you, and you can show kindness to them whenever you wish, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for its burial. So this is a foreshadowing of, and, and again, is this a historical memory or a later framing? We can't say for certain, but what it says is, Jesus is saying, this woman gets it. She gets that I'm going to die. And often what we see, so in these um, preceding chapters, Jesus starts pointing out to the disciples that he's going to die. He says, when we go into Jerusalem, I'm going to be betrayed and handed over and killed. And so he's forecasting this. And again, is this historical memory or retrojection after the fact? Hard to say, but he's, he's clearly aware the likelihood of his death is, is nigh. And the disciples, every time he makes a proclamation like this, they go, no way, no way. Peter says, forbid it, Lord. This can never happen to you. The Messiah can't die. You know, you're the one who's going to lead us. You can't be killed. Um, and so in this scene, we see, and this will become a theme in the final remaining days, it's the women who get it and the men who don't get it. So the woman gets it. And um, yeah, we're just going, and, yeah, what else yeah, is there? And, and, and I always think, well, of course the women got that he's on this path of like suffering servanthood because that was the path women were forced to walk. Um, the woman understands the, the sort of uh, trajectory of this. Um, and that theme will recur. We'll see that eventually all the male disciples will freak out when things start you know, going downhill and they all betray him, deny him, and run away. And the, all of the Gospels say, but the women stick it out. The women stay at the cross when he's crucified. The women take the body. The women stay by the tomb. So there's a theme of, you know, the dolt guys and the, the insightful women. It's uh, worth exploring. Yeah, Angela? Oh, and then don't. I'm yeah. sorry. I was just thinking about Jeremiah when he said, if you must kill me, go ahead, but be, be, make sure it's just because, mm -hmm. all right, he's talking to the real authority of the place. Jesus is not talking to the real authority of the place. The real authority is Rome. Mm -hmm. And they don't care. They're not, their idea is not for a return to God. Their idea is the Pax Romana. To keep their power. Yes. Right, through their yeah. peace through force. Yes, and Jesus is getting that as the week progresses, the week. Mm -hmm. He's seeing that, oh, okay. Maybe not. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This is. I think that that's a critical point. Thank well, you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Joan. Historical footnote: <clears throat> Nard is spike nard, and the tradition of mummification and burial yes. of the dead yeah. from Egypt that came um, was spike nard and and frankincense and you dip the muslin and it yeah. protects the body and so Jesus was was uh, prepared 
Right. That, that these are these, yes, these. This is a very Jonah symbolic thing. point. That 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 what it's saying that she gets that she's preparing me for burial. Well, this was the oil that was used to prepare people for burial. Right. That that these were the herbs that they would use to prepare a body before it would be buried. Uh, uh, Diane. I'm, I'm a little confused about Herod <coughs> and who had power. Mm-hmm. Okay. Herod was Jewish. Herod was ha- semi-Jewish. Semi-Jewish. Yeah. And so we start out with Herod the Great, who's dead at this time. Okay. And then the, the, the territory is divided. And so this Herod is his son. Um, so this isn't Herod the Great who restored the temple. Okay. Yeah. And, and Pontius Pilate at this point is now governor in Jerusalem. There. But Herod the son is still around? He's still no. Around? Yes. Yeah. No. yeah. Up in the north. Yeah, Herod is still there okay. because at one point in some of the other gospel, in some of the gospel texts, they, they pass Jesus back and forth between them. Mm-hmm. So Pilate goes, well, I don't see a problem with him. He really falls under Herod's jurisdiction, sends him to Herod, and then Herod sends him back to Pilate. So um, they're still both ruling. But Herod isn't ruling in Jerusalem. No. Herod is ruling, this Herod Antipas is ruling in the Galilee. Right, and Jesus yes. is from Galilee, so, so he says it's your job to okay, make Okay, so let me, hold on. Yeah. So here's, was he still in the Hebrew tribes? Hold on, so, so a little about Herod. Yeah. The Maccabees, the Hasmoneans, were, uh, once they were in power, they went on a, uh, they went on a spree of conquest, including Edom, or Idumea. Where they, in the first recorded time in history, they forced conversion on the uh, on the Edomites in order to be part of the kingdom of the Hasmoneans. One of those descendants was one of those the descendants of one of those families that had been forced to become Jewish was known as was Herod. Herod, as it happens, I mean, there's a lot of irony and a lot of uh, turnabout is fair play and all this. Not fair play, but, you know, what goes around comes around. Um, Because Herod is then appointed as king of Judea. Is he Jewish or is he not Jewish? The Judeans have never accepted the Edomites, the Idumeans as Jewish. So Herod is like this interesting liminal character. Is he Jewish? Is he not Jewish? This is Herod the Son. Herod the Great. Oh, Herod the Great. Right. All his descendants are also questionable Jews, according to some Jews. Okay. But, but he put this effort into the temple. He did. He wanted to be, he, yes, he's a very complicated guy. Which was a he, Jewish thing. It, yes, he considered himself Jewish. I'm just giving you more history than you yeah. need to know. So um, he dies around 4 BC. Yeah? Yes. His sons are appointed, the, the, his, his province is split up into sections, and his sons are appointed to be rulers of these different sections, but the ruler, Archelaus, who is the ruler of Jerusalem and environs, is removed from office and replaced by Roman governors. Not Jewish. Not Jewish at all. However, therefore Pontius Pilate. Right. Right, who's a Roman uh, functionary. Uh, Have I got that wrong? No, what happened was... Rome, way too young. What year? To put him, um, oh, you're going to get me on a year. Um, <laughs> it has to be before the death of Christ because they appoint Pontius Pilate is now, um, he's, he's ruling, he's somewhere in the north, whatever, and the people don't like him, so they pull him out of there, put him into Jerusalem, 
make him procurator with the authority of a governor. So that's how he gets there. Okay. Okay. So there's no rule. There's no Jewish ruler, uh, because the one who would be in line is too young, and the Romans bring in their own governor. However, another of Herod's children, Herod Antipas, is still ruling technically his province, which is in the Galilee, which would have been Jesus's jurisdiction. And according to the stories, which I don't know, they, there's a who, who's going to handle this is going on. Yeah, yeah, and, and um, it's interesting, Pilate and Herod, and I don't know which gospel it is, when it's passed back and forth between them, um, it says, um, and that day Herod and Pilate became friends. They became friends. <laughs> That's so nice. Um, so now, I, I want to say something about, uh, I'm still on the women, I mean, and the 12 disciples. So, as a newcomer to these texts, it's clear that the 12 apostles, the 12 disciples, disciple means they're supposed to follow in Jesus' way, right? That's what a disciple does. Uh, uh, you learn, you, 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 and, and they are pathetic. <laughs> they, they get it wrong all the time, almost without fail. So it seems to me that they are, that that's a, that's a literary setup for um, all of us, as yeah. Matthew was teaching me. We're all part of that, at least the guys are. I don't, because I want to get to the women part, the, the, the bit, but, and it reminded me of Moses and the children of Israel, who are also complete and utter screw-ups, utterly unreliable, <laughs> faithless. Uh, Moses was just up there talking with God, and now you've made a golden calf? Like, what? Right, and, and I was thinking of this, Either the disciples are kind of as are a new incarnation, a new of the children of Israel because they are twelve of them and there are twelve tribes, or and or it's also just a classic storytelling device, right? To have the, the to have the, these this category of screw ups, you know, to illustrate to us in a teaching narrative what we're supposed to do and what we're not supposed to do. I'm still fascinated um, by the fact that it's women. Because mm -hmm. this is true in the Torah, too, uh, especially around the story of the Exodus. Uh, as you may know, um, it's the midwives, the daughter of Pharaoh, Moses' mother, and Miriam, Moses' sister, who are the only ones who ensure, and then, then Moses' wife, Zipporah, in chapter 4, they are the only ones who ensure that Moses will grow to adulthood. Right? And I'm fascinated by that. Uh, uh, so it, it brings up a question that eludes me of feminine principle, masculine principle, women, men. I don't ha I, you know, I'd be interested in hearing anyone, anyone's <coughs> insights about that. But, but certainly Jonathan's right that the disciples are used. Now, some of them may have been quite doltish, but they, they, <laughs> they are used as a literary device t in order to teach something to the reader. So there's something that the gospel author wants Jesus to convey to you, who's reading the text, so he needs the disciple to ask a stupid question so Jesus can then give us, the readers, the answer. So often they play that literary role of being the ones who get it wrong and ask the question so that Jesus can convey the lesson. Um, and uh, we see, for example, somewhere here towards the end, James and John 
We don't have it on the text here, but James and John start. Um, Jesus says, so what were you talking about while we were walking on the road there? And they don't want to say, and then, no, tell me what it was. And he says, well, we were talking about who's going to be greatest in your kingdom. And um, can we sit on your right hand and your left hand, Jesus? And he says that in the kingdom of God, it's not like that. He says the Gentiles like to lord power over people, but in God's kingdom, the one who is greatest will be the one who is servant of all, uh, the one who is most humble. And so Jesus is constantly inverting, but the disciples have to play the role of, you know, getting it wrong so Jesus can make the point. Just an idea about the women. A little louder, Angela. Just an idea about, about the, the women. women. The, and what you had just said, Matthew, is the women were the nurturers and the servers, uh-huh. and the men were the receivers. This is very important, yes. Yeah. The women were the nurturers and the servers. So they they understand service, about, okay, even if they haven't done it by choice. Yeah. But and Jesus is essentially modeling a very feminine mode of power, what we would traditionally call a feminine mode of power. That Jesus isn't modeling this, you know... Power over. Power over domination. He's modeling power with. Service. Or service of. Um, and so it makes sense that the women get it and the guys don't. Because mm. the guys still want your conquering king. Especially when you consider the rigid social structure... Yes. Of, of male and female roles. Yeah, mm-hmm. thank you. Thank you, Vivian, um, and then Gary. So, uh, given the role of women in Jesus' life, um, why did he feel he had to choose men as disciples? Why did he feel he had to choose men as disciples? Well, the Gospels make it very clear that he had men and women as disciples. Um, and we're actually, in uh, Luke's Gospel, which is often more concerned with women um, explicitly, a number of the female disciples are named. And we've talked about this in previous classes. Uh, they're named as Joanna, Susanna, um, uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe Mary, Salome. And so, so. certainly um, he did have both men and women in the circle of disciples. Um, the texts give us this, also this grouping of disciples that are called the Twelve. Um, now there's a question, of course, was well, that a symbolic number? Were there literally 12 or is this a symbolic number, mm-hmm. you know, making a point? Or did Jesus intentionally get 12 to, to symbolize the restoration and the reunification of the 12 tribes? That this is, um, but, but yes, in the social milieu, yes. of course, men were the ones who naturally sat at the feet of the rabbi. And we see that being a conflict with the circle around Jesus that, for example, there's a story where Mary sits at the rabbi's feet and her sister freaks out and Jesus says, no, I'm not going to ask her to leave. And yeah, it's Angela. also Wait, I just, called history. It's also called history. His story. His story. I want to say something. Thank you. I want to. Greco-Roman. And so... The, the, it, it was it's patrilineal. It's 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 a patriarchy, and so they would they would naturally over time write the women out. Well, right. there is a question when Jesus anyway. sends the disciples out. Um, some of the gospel texts say he sent them out in Greek, dua a dua, which means two by two, right. and it's the exact same phrase used in the story of Noah's ark in the Greek translation that he brought the animals in two by two, which implies male and female. And so some scholars ask the question when it says he sent them out in this way, does it mean he sent them out male and female pairs for the teaching? Well, to recognize teaching. That, that sometimes, you know, there were 
situations in which women could share the good news that men couldn't and vice versa. So he sent them out uh, in pairs that way. It's, it's, it's a, a read of and, the text. And, and I have a very strong <coughs> sort of take on this that um, as the story gets stylized, it's not going to be women. That's not how they told stories. There were going to be 12. If it's going to be 12, which to me is a, a profoundly symbolic number, it's not just the 12 tribes. It's the 12 um, signs in the zodiac. It's the 12 is like, 12 is ev 12 is a whole, is the whole 360 degrees, right? And yes, for me it would, it, it, whether, since we've seen to know from the text that he had female disciples, uh, why is in the story that's told, are they all male? Because they, that's the only way the story was going to get it told. It was a patriarchal culture, right? That's and my the take. authors were all men. And that's my take on wouldn't it. Wouldn't have been published. Right, yeah, that's right. Would have found a publisher. That's just like Joe has to get married at the end of Little Women, because uh -huh. otherwise no one will read it, right? Because I love that movie. So let's get one more, and then we want to keep the text rolling. Two quick Yeah. You talk about the vulnerability, and I couldn't agree with you more. To me, Jesus has two lessons to teach me, okay? Post-Freud, the therapist has told us that vulnerability is the key to intimacy. Jesus teaches us that vulnerability is the source of greatest power, of strength. And also Jesus teaches us that, for me, that um, paradoxically, the closer we get towards understanding the source, the more alienated we get from mankind, the more alone we are. But I think you mentioned the, the golden calf, and I think there's a clue here, and a connection between that story and the ones we're talking about. And what it is, it, to me, is this. If you take the position that, that the Torah is a reflection of man, and that we are with God and God is with us, I think hidden in that story is God's vulnerability. Mm. God's missing the point. They're not worshiping the golden bull. And I think what the people are saying, yes, your law is not to have idols, but we're worshiping the vulnerable, the mm. most vulnerable creature, and God misses that. Oh, okay, I want you to preach that, too. Do you want to summarize that? Uh, I don't know if I can summarize it I, uh, and get it accurately on tape, so I think we're going to just, we heard it, and uh, maybe some. But to, towards you, vulnerability, human vulnerability and divine vulnerability, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so just to keep, okay, one more. <laughs> well, I just want to go back to your clarification for me of the Herod thing, because I think maybe other people were confused about this, too. And my insight to it now is that, you know, having always learned history as the Jews are persecuted, I was confused about Herod being Jewish and the Romans and, you know, killing Jesus. But now I understand it's the, it's the peacemakers who are persecuted, Jewish or not. I mean, in this case, they were Jewish, but he wasn't persecuted, persecuted or killed because he was Jewish. Mm -hmm. right. In these stories, you have, often in the stories of the prophets, what do we see? Jews persecuting Jews, yeah. you know? It's, it's the, the authorities wanting to stone the prophet who is criticizing the authorities. And in those stories, both of them are Jews. So you make a point about right. the peacemakers, but... Um, and I want to make a brief point about that. Diane said she grew up saying the Jews were always persecuted, right? That's the that's not the history, that's the story, the meta-story that we get. And there, in, since, the, since modern his, history has been a field over the last 150, 180 years, there was a famous um, historian named Salabaron 
who called it the lachrymose view of Jewish history. Lachrymose means uh, tearful. And if you study history, there have been periods when the Jews weren't victimized. There have been periods when we've had sovereignty. There have been periods. And so, yes, we need to not paint history with some kind of uh, brush like that. So the next bit of the story uh, is what's remembered in Christian tradition as the Last Supper. And we're told by Mark on the first day of unleavened bread. Oh, where are we? This is on, on the last the second, supper. Okay. second sheet, first side of it. On second page, first uh, front side. On the first day of unleavened bread. Um, and by the chronology in the text, this is Thursday evening. Now, there's some confusion. There's a reason to wonder if Mark is slightly stylizing the week to fit everything in. And Jonathan might speak to that, but by the account of the story, on the first day of unleavened bread, Thursday evening now, when the Passover lamb is sacrificed, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. So the disciples set out and went to the city and found everything as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover meal. So a very sort of fantastic scene here where he says, follow the man with the jar and the room will... Um, but the key thing being... What's that? And just like the donkey. Right. Go and the donkey... But I, have a, but I don't know what the proof text is for this one. So if it's if it has a deeper meaning that the listeners who knew the backstories would know, I don't know what that one is. I just wanted to say that. But the, the point being, it's time for the Passover. And Jonathan pointed out to me that, that the preparation for the Passover traditionally would never take place on a Thursday. So would you say All right, to according that? to the Jewish calendar, Passover never falls on a Thursday evening because that, the calendar is very complicated, but the rabbis who calendrated all this a long time ago uh, wanted to make sure that... Um, uh, that Rosh Hashanah never started on a Saturday night, and if Passover is on a Thursday, then that means Rosh Hashanah is going to be on a Saturday night. With, so, pa if you look at the Jewish calendar, Passover never falls on a Thursday night. Uh, okay. what, what about the possibility that it's we we're saying Thursday night, but the Friday started at sundown Thursday? Uh, we were trying to figure that out too, and and Mark's chronology doesn't quite work out, so we're just not sure. So, so Thursday would begin Wednesday, On Wednesday night, night, right at sunset. But this seems by the text account to be Thursday night, which would be the start of Friday. Um, and so by the chronology, that's how this works. Um, that, that these events of the Last Supper happen Thursday. He's arrested that night and then crucified the next day. Um, there's some scholarship that asks the question of whether or not this all happened during the week of Passover at all. And um, one, of the, one of the scholarly thoughts, um, arguments, is that maybe this all happened actually during the festival of Sukkot. Um, and because the symbolism accrued attached to Jesus, so Christians early on started speaking of him as the new Paschal Lamb. And so that was a symbolic you know, reference that he was like a Paschal Lamb. 
And so when the narrative gets told, the events then, to match the symbolism, migrate to Passover. The argument that this might have actually happened during the festival of Sukkot, that's the other major festival when, again, pilgrims would be pouring into Jerusalem. And part of that festival would be the, the shouts of Hosanna and the waving of branches. Um, so that entrance actually looks like Sukkot, not Passover. So if that's the case, um, the other thing is it says leafy branches. Um, at this time of year, the branches wouldn't be in leaf, but they would be at the time of Sukkot. So there's this argument that maybe these events, um, because of the symbolic res resonance, for good storytelling, you move it to Passover, even though maybe historically it happened during Sukkot. That's one argument. I, I don't personally have a strong opinion either way, and the whole Passover setup makes a lot of sense to me, but I, I get the argument. Right, and I want to I add briefly that um, in Second Temple Judaism, in the first century, the greatest pilgrimage festival of the year was Sukkot, much greater than Passover, because Sukkot was known as the festival, and was when, after all of the, all of the um, uh, grain had been stored and dried and stored away, everyone went up to Jerusalem to pray for rain. Right? They did, it was the beginning of the rainy season, and it was, there was a giant festival called the Water Drawing Festival, and the leafy branches and the palm fronds were rain sticks, and seeing, and on, on Sukkot, we have a series of, every day, we have a different poem that, said, that begins with Hosanna, save us. So there's a lot of strong uh, ways that you could wonder whether he was entering with, with leafy branches and palm to what was the biggest festival <laughs> of the year, when they also offered lots of animals. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And maybe, maybe a lot of different events are being collapsed into this narrative. Maybe Jesus staged a thing during Sukkot and then wound up, you know, who knows? Because uh, Mark is compressing things into this compact seven-day narrative. Um, and, and we're almost at the end of our time. So what, what happens here, they gather for the Passover meal. When it was evening, he came with the 12. And when they had taken their places and were eating, Jesus said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be distressed and to say to, one, to him one after another, surely not I. He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the bowl with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the one by whom he is betrayed. It would have been better for that one not to have been born. While they were eating, he took a loaf of bread. Now I checked the translation by uh, Willis Barnstone, and it actually says in that rendering, he took the matzot. Um, which makes more sense, which, if it's Passover. Right. Uh, and after blessing it, he broke it, gave it to them, and said, take, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and all of them drank from it. He said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I tell you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine, until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Um, wow. So this... Wait, let me say yeah. one thing and give you the yeah, So please. we're going to pick this up next week. Right. But I want to, because 
Okay. Yeah, but we'll, we'll, we'll start right here. I mean, wow. Uh, uh, but So I just want to give Matthew whatever he wants to you know, say now to well, us. Well, he's doing something radical here. He's taking this imagery of, of uh, broken bread and poured out blood and doing something like new. You know, like this is a, a strange use of these images. And so we'll, we'll look at what he's up to and what the gospel text is up to next go around. Um, but a reminder that this meal is actually in keeping with Jesus' whole tradition throughout the Gospels. It centers around <coughs> table fellowship. Like, this is what he does. Um, so, yeah, I want to start breaking over the symbols, but I realize we're at time. Right, we'll do, there, we'll do yeah, so week. what we'll do, we'll, we'll move right into um, next week. We will begin looking at the crucifixion during the first half of class, those final events, and then the second hour, we'll look at the resurrection narratives. Um, and we'll get through as much of that as we can, and then when we come together for that final session, any loose threads, we'll weave those together. And, and, and then we'll... Then we'll do the next thing. Yeah. Um, any last words before we say goodbye? No. Thank you, everybody. Yeah, thank you all. Thank you. Next week, same time, same place.